If you love the History Extra podcast and want to help us keep bringing you brilliant episodes, then please share it with a friend or a fellow history fan who you think might enjoy it. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. There are two things that are absolutely true. Grandma loves you and she would never say no to McDonald's. So treat yourself to a Grandma McFlurry with your order today. It's what Grandma would want. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. At participating McDonald's for a limited time. This Father's Day, the Home Depot has same-day delivery on the perfect gift to help Dad be everything he can be. Because your dad is more than just a dad. He's groundskeeper of the yard, the perfecter of the patio, and the cleaner of the clippings. Let the Home Depot help power Dad's doing with the convenience and gas-like power of Milwaukee cordless outdoor tools. Plus, get up to $150 off select Milwaukee tools. For everything Dad is, find the perfect gift at the Home Depot. How doers get more done. Order select and stock items by 4 p.m. subject to availability. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. Today we've got a conversation with the leading early medieval historian, Professor Pauline Stafford, talking about the Anglo-Saxon Chronicles. Asking the questions is our content director, David Musgrove. Today I'm delighted to be talking to Professor Pauline Stafford, who was Chair of Medieval History at the University of Liverpool and is now Professor Emerita there. She's a leading authority on the history of women and gender and on politics more generally in England from the 8th to the early 12th centuries. Her latest book is just out with Oxford University Press, and it's absolutely fascinating. It's called After Alfred, Anglo-Saxon Chronicles and Chroniclers, 900 to 1150. And that's what we're chatting about today. So welcome, Pauline. Thank you very much for joining us on the podcast. Hi. Nice to be here, Dave. (laughs) Good. (laughs) Okay, so we've got lots of questions, uh, and we've talked about it a bit in advance, and uh, maybe I've got too many questions, so uh, we'll see how we go. But uh, it's such a fascinating subject. So the first question, your book title references the Anglo-Saxon Chronicles. So can you just uh, introduce us to those? What actually are the Anglo-Saxon Chronicles? Right. Well, they're a group of chronicles. They're all in the form of annals. They're all written in the Old English language, and they were written between the end of the 9th and the middle of the 12th century. Uh, There are seven of them surviving, more or less, and and I say more or less because one of them was very badly burnt in the cotton fire in the early 18th century, so we've just got scraps of that. Um, And we've got a fragment of another. 
And we also know that there are some lost chronicles, three or four certainly. They're anonymous. Nobody signed them. Nobody claimed authorship. Uh, they're written at different times and places, but there's no statement about where they were written. Um, and they all grow in some way out of a chronicle that was written at the court of Alfred, King of the West Saxons, at the end of the ninth century. And like Alfred's, they all go back to the arrival of Julius Caesar. So they all cover centuries long before they were themselves written. And some of them go beyond 1066, beyond the Norman conquest. They've all finished by the middle of the 12th century. So if you think about that, they contain a mix. They've got history long past, long before their own time, back to Julius Caesar, and contemporary history writing, writing about the time and place um, close to the authors. It's very difficult to give them a name. We don't know who wrote them, so we can't attach a name to them. Um, and they're usually called now by letters. So I'll call them Chronicle A, B, C, D, E, F, G, and the fragment is H. I know that's not very exciting. Um, they're often called the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, as if they're somehow all the same one. Um, and there is a lot in common between them, but um, I think you have to recognise that they're all individual chronicles. And that really is the basis of my book, um, thinking and talking about that. Okay. Um, thank you for that introduction. So you mentioned there that uh, they are annals. Um, so how do they differ from other works of contemporary history at the time? So I'm thinking of Bede and uh, William and Malmesbury and things like that. What's the difference basically between an annal and a chronicle? And have we got the, have we got the right name to start with? Yeah, that's right. Uh, well, it's an analytic chronicle. That's what they are. They're analytic chronicles. And that's it really describes the way the information is arranged. So in an analytic chronicle, you get a year date, and then next to the year date, it will say something like, in this year, X, Y, and Z happened. And then the next year, and there might be a gap, um, might be nothing happened that they put down, and then another year date and so on. We're used to reading history that's arranged by chapters or by themes. Uh, and that's the way that Bede writes. And it's the way that William and Malmesbury writes. So their work is chopped up into books, the, the ecclesiastical history of the English people um, or the deeds of the English kings, which is William of Malmesbury's one. Um, and each book is arranged chronologically, but also thematically. Um, so Bede, for instance, book three looks at the conversion of the English. There's no... No organisation like that in these analytic chronicles. It's just year after year, this happened in this year, this happened in this year, this happened in this year. And I think if you think about that for a bit, you can see it might affect the way we read these chronicles. Um, it's very easy to think that someone just wrote down year after year, this happened, this happened. Um, so when we read Bede, we think, hang on, someone's shaping this, you know, there's someone there, there's a Northumbrian monk at the beginning of the 8th century. Um, and we need to be careful, you know, we need to be aware that someone is, is working out what he wants to say, perhaps has an agenda. The danger with these chronicles is we just read them as one damn fact after another, frankly. Nobody's really planning them, we might think. Someone is just writing it down year by year. But that's nonsense, because bits of them are retrospective, um, even if you're only writing a year, you're probably writing it the next year and got a perspective on it. But actually, whole chunks of these are written retrospectively or sometimes rewritten. So 
there will be agendas and there's a danger we might miss them. The big advantage of chronicles like this is they're open-ended. You can just add bits on at the end, add a few more pages, add a bit more history on at the end. You know, they, they kind of grow organically in that way. You can even add bits on at the end of an annal. You can go into the margin um, and add bits on. Um, you can merge them with other annals. So you can get two sets of annals. They've both got an entry for 1066. Um, the scribe who's making a chronicle puts them both together. It's like mail merging, really, um, and produces a new annal. So they're kind of organic. They can grow. Um, I don't think that a William of Malmesbury book or a Bede book grows in quite the same way. The author has shaped it to start with. And, of course, the other thing about annals is they're probably written by lots of people over a long period of time. Um, so you read them in a different way. You need to be very careful. Okay, so it's um, uh, it, it, they're not just like a, you know you think of grad grind saying facts, dear boy, and it's you know one fact after another. But there is there is much more to it than that. And I actually just think just thinking about it in the in the sense of writing something a year later, I um I, I try and keep a diary um uh, on a on a reasonably regular basis. And I just I forgot to write it for a couple of weeks uh, and tried to remember what I'd done two weeks ago. So um and and couldn't really. So you know that's the the, the sense of memory must be uh, must be playing into that as well I suppose. To some extent yes um, but I think very often we can actually see them going back and reshaping something which has gone before so it isn't just the decay of memory you know am I remembering it all correctly um, they're going back retrospectively and writing up a whole section because because they don't write all the time I think that's probably another thing I should have made quite clear there's long gaps in them when nobody's writing anything at all and then something will make them want to write. Um, and then they'll go back and they'll fill in years beforehand. So it's much more complicated than it looks at first sight. It looks like a diary, a year-to-year -year diary, but they're actually much more complicated than that. Yeah, so it kind of looks easy, but actually there's much more to it. Brilliant. And, and, that, and that's what we're going to try and talk about. Um, so... Um, so, uh, so, so the bulk of your book is is really going into a lot of detail about these about uh, what we know about these individual chronicles and where and when and how they might have been written. And as you said, we don't um, we, we don't have the the author's name. We don't have a preface saying saying anything about it. So, what do we know about who wrote them, when, where, and how? Just sort of top line, I suppose. What can you tell us? Well, they were probably mostly written by ecclesiastics. Um, don't rule out some lay people but mostly by ecclesiastics. They're written at places like Winchester in Old Wessex. They're written at Canterbury, um, Peterborough, probably York, Worcester. Chronicle D, the last of them, um, we think might even be in the far north, could even be in lowland Scotland, um, the furthest north of them. They're written by church people, usually ones connected to the royal court. And this is you know, right from the beginning. Alfred's own chronicle is written close to his court, um, by people who come regularly there, and an awful lot of them are written by this sort of people. And that might mean a churchman, you know, because archbishops of York, archbishops of Canterbury, many churchmen come regularly to the court. Um, so court people, court connections, um, where they start in Wessex around the royal court. Um, early 10th century, there's probably one being written in Mercia. Mid to late 10th century, I think there's one being written connected to the Archbishops of York. Might be at York, might be at Worcester, um, which is a church she also holds. Um, Kent and Canterbury, quite important by the, the end. 
One thing that really struck me by the time I'd finished this book was after Alfred and the early 10th century, how few seem to have been written in Wessex. Most of the major chronicles seem to be written in either Mercia um, or possibly Northumbria, but certainly north of the Thames or in Kent. Um, and I think that's quite interesting. You mentioned earlier the chronicles are anonymous. Um, we don't have a named author. Um, how significant is that for the way that we understand them, do you think? Yeah. Well, first of all, I, th I think I've, I've probably already made one significant point about that, and that is that we've got to remember there were people behind them. Um, the danger is that we read them as if there weren't people behind them, as if they are just lists of obvious facts. So I think, we've, first of all, we, we've got to, as it were, almost ignore the anonymity. We've got to get behind it if we possibly can. I think anonymity should really remind us that there's no premium on originality here. Um, there's no concept of plagiarism. They copy each other. Um, they copy Alfred's chronicle. There's no feeling, you know, you've got to put a name to this. You know, I've got to say this is mine. Um, you don't shout out and a scribe won't shout out to you. I'm adding my bit now. Um, the whole tone of them, in fact, is anonymous. They're in the third person, usually. They very rarely say I or we or us. And so when they do, and this is one of the things that really interested me when I started looking at them a lot, when they do say I or we or us, you really perk up your ears. You think, why are they saying this? You know, what are we hearing here? And there's a famous chronicle that we'll, I'm no doubt we'll talk more about called the Northern Recension. And sometimes you get I and we in there and you can tell that these are Northumbrians um, because they say, we did this. And the Southumbrians did such and such. So we know that they are Northumbrians. We, we know that um, these are northern voices, and it's quite rare to hear those um, in the 10th and 11th centuries. I also think that they're anonymous, and we assume, I think, very often that means that they're written by men. And one of the things that I wanted to open up in this book was at least, at least consider that some of them might be written by women. Um, I'm pretty certain, for instance, that in Alfred's own chronicle, um, they used a group of annals that were written at the nunnery of Wimborne. And remember, you know, nunneries are full of educated women. There, there are women here who write and who can compose annals. In Winchester, there's a house of nuns, the Nunnerminster. We've got an early 10th century chronicle that seems to come from very close to the court of Edward the Elder around Winchester, we shouldn't exclude the possibility um, that it was written at Nunnerminster. So I think we've got to be careful about this anonymity. There are authors. Don't assume who, that we know who they all are. Don't assume that we know they're all men. Think a lot. Uh, you know, it's, they're really challenging, I think, these texts. Um, you've got to try and identify the author and keep an open mind. You, you mentioned that, that possible Nunnerminster one. Do you ever see... Uh, particular moments where you think that sounds like a women's woman's voice or anything like that, or is that would that be just sort of stretching it too far to try and read into that? Uh, no, and indeed that raises an interesting point. You know, I mean, do women write about women, for instance? Um, there are not many women in these chronicles, actually. Um, one or two, like Athelflaed, the daughter of King Alfred. 
But I don't think we should necessarily assume that she's there because a woman is writing um, about it. She's there because, probably because somebody was making a claim for her to rule or for someone to rule as a result of her. And that someone is as likely to be a man um, as to be a woman. Those Wimborne nuns, for instance, um, I worked out that I thought they were probably the people who had written about an ancestor of King Alfred, a man called King Ina of Wessex. Um, so they're women, they're actually writing about a man. Um, but there were things that connected it to Wimborne itself, which made me think, yeah, I think it's probably the nunnery there. So it's quite a difficult one. Just keep an open mind um, and don't expect women to be writing about women. Actually, a group of mid-10th century annals, lots of references there to women, almost certainly written by the Archbishop of York. Almost certainly written by the Archbishop of York because he's interested in widows, um, and most of them are widows, and he's interested in the protection of widows. So you can't make assumptions about this. You know, anonymity is a problem, but we've got to try and get behind it. Okay, so I will, I will try and keep an open mind throughout the rest of the conversation. So, um, so the next question uh, I had was um, uh, hopefully quite an easy one. What language were they written in, and, and what does that tell us? Well, they're written in the vernacular. An early form of English, uh, what we call Anglo-Saxon um, or Old English. Most writing in the early Middle Ages is in Latin. Bede is in Latin. William of Malmesbury is in Latin. It's not that common to find chronicles written in the, the vernacular. What does it mean? Well, the obvious answer would be it makes them more accessible. Um, it's a sign that they could reach a wider audience, but I'm not absolutely sure that they're intended for a wider audience. As a written language, as opposed to a spoken language, Old English is very much connected with the courts of the West Saxon kings. Um, it's, King Alfred is famous for translating works into Old English um, at his court. He's famous for, um, for encouraging the study of Old English and the use of it as a written language. And as late as the end of the 10th century, it's groups of scholars around the court are writing in Old English. It's almost as if it's a connection to the court as much as just being accessible. You're writing in this language is almost a sign that you're connected to the court or that you want to say that you're somehow connected to the court. They're largely written in late West Saxon, um, which again, is the language which is developed at the court of King Alfred and his successors. So, you know, that I think is, is ramming home that point. There's a couple which are not quite so straightforward. Chronicle F, written after the Norman Conquest, is bilingual. It's the only one that's bilingual. It's written in Latin and in Old English. It's an abbreviation of a vernacular chronicle, and every annal is also translated into Latin. F is writing, or the F author is writing, at Christchurch, Canterbury, probably around about the year 1100. By that date, there are Norman monks at Christchurch, Canterbury. They probably can't read Old English or read it very well. And he's writing something deliberately to widen the audience, though it looks very much as if it may be a Christchurch, Canterbury audience. And probably one of the most interesting but most debatable things of all, the very last annals in Chronicle D. Some of these annals just have hints of a northerner writing. 
and the very last one, which is dated 1130, just may be the earliest example of lowland Scots that we've got. You've got to be very, very cautious there. And I talked to a lot of language scholars about this when I was writing the book. And they said, well, you know, if you could prove it was written in the south of Scotland, that would be great because then we would know we'd got our earliest example of lowland Scots. But it is just possible um, that that's the case. And whatever, it looks very different from the language of the, the earlier chronicles. It's a sure sign that D is, as it were, now outside the network. So the language is very interesting. So you can see um, different dialects even within the uh, within the, the the structure of Old English. You can see different dialects. What I think is so interesting is that most of these chronicles are written in Late West Saxon, even though some of them probably are connected so to someone like the Archbishop of York um, or the Archbishop of Canterbury, that they're written in what is essentially the literary language of the day, Late West Saxon connected to the court. So that's languages. And then you mentioned the audiences and who, who we think might uh, might have been the intended audiences a bit. Um, so so what do you think? Who who are they supposed to be consumed by? Uh, and, and were they supposed to be read or, or listened to? Do we, do we know that? I think this is one of the most difficult questions of all to answer about them, actually. Um, we've got very little indication of who read them. We're not even sure how many copies circulated. There probably were more than we've got now, but... Um, we're very unsure about how many. It looks as if you know the language would make them accessible to a wider audience, but as I say, it could be that they're very much aimed at people at court. Um, and we do know that, that things were read out at court. And so we could be looking at chronicles which are often meant, or some of them at any rate, um, to be read in that kind of context. Um, we've got the bilingual F which I think is clearly meant to be read by an audience which is not absolutely sure um, about reading in Old English, that really needs to, to have a Latin translation as well. We do know that some lay people read them. Um, we know that a lay noble, a great noble, translated one into Latin around about the year 1000. Now, just think how sort of counterintuitive, that is. We think they're in Old English, they must be accessible to the laity um, because of that. And here's a layman actually translating one into very complicated Latin. Um, it just shows you what you can't assume about language and what, who, who can understand what um, in language. I think we need to think about possible patrons, um, people for whom they were produced, like the Northern Recension produced for the Archbishops of York, they're an audience. They and their household um, are an audience. In fact, I think a lot of these were perhaps produced for bishops and archbishops um, and in their households or close to their households. My best guess is that the audience wasn't very big. Um, my best guess is that these are not things that were going to be read very widely, even heard very widely. I think the court... And these great Episcopal, perhaps the odd religious house too. I think that's what we're thinking about. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. And I think that they are telling a story which could be read, and almost certainly was read, as legitimising those kings as rulers. 
and also arguably legitimising rule over a wider England. There are two things that are absolutely true. Grandma loves you, and she would never say no to McDonald's. So treat yourself to a Grandma McFlurry with your order today. It's what Grandma would want. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. At participating McDonald's for a limited time. Going for your first ever run around the park. Literally running errands all over town. Running for the finish line and your personal best. If you run, you're a runner. Find the shoes and clothes to run your way at newbalance.com slash running. New Balance. Run your way. This episode is brought to you by Heineken Silver. When you discover something you love, like a new podcast or beer, you have to tell everyone about it. So when you try new Heineken Silver, a world-class light beer with only 2.9 carbs and 95 calories, you'll want to tell the world how great it is. New Heineken Silver, the world-class light beer with all the taste, no bitter endings. Available at your local Heineken retailer or for delivery at heineken.com silver. Must be 21 plus to purchase. Enjoy Heineken responsibly. So uh, you, you sort of earlier on, you've laid out that we shouldn't see these uh, these chronicles as as just facts and facts and facts, and there actually there are uh, there are agendas underlying them maybe, and and uh, and, and purposes being uh, being put forward by uh, by the people in who are writing them. So, what would you say are the chronicles' main themes, if they have a main theme, and what are the purposes that uh, that sort of underpin the whole project? Main theme: kings, um, kings and especially their military activity, um, including their struggles against the Vikings or Scandinavian invaders. That's what seems to have prompted Alfred's chronicle at the end of the the 9th century. Changing a bit in the 11th century, and especially after 1066, but still very focused on royal figures, on kings. Another theme, Christianity. And this is especially true of Alfred's Chronicle, which, of course, they all include. You have to remember that, that even though some of them include contemporary annals written much later, they all include Alfred's. And Christianity was a major theme there. It has a lot about the conversion to Christianity. Um, and Alfred's Chronicle also has a skeleton story um, of the other kingdoms apart from Wessex, Mercia, Northumbria, um, Kent. But the focus is kings, Christianity and especially Wessex and West Saxon history coming up to the the 9th century. I think just as interesting in a way as what's there is what's not there. There's very little about politics, as we would understand politics. So there's a lot about kings, um, but there's very little about their relationships with great nobles, the sorts of discussions, factions and so on at court, um, the kind of political tensions that must have arisen as West Saxon kings expanded north of the Thames. Very little of that. Very little of what I would call family politics, the struggle for the succession to the throne. I mean, we get hints in lots of other sources that these were major questions. I mean, this is Game of Thrones territory, of course. Um, Very little about that, even though I think some of them are actually written in the context of struggles over the throne. They don't talk about it much explicitly. Instead of that, they are 
pushing kings and their, especially West Saxon kings and their claims to rule, their legitimate claims to rule, some of them at any rate, and especially 10th century ones. And there's very little about what we call foreign affairs, um, not much about foreign rulers, not much even about the rulers of the rest of Britain. They don't even get much more than walk-on parts, um, though I think maybe I should call them kneel-on parts because they only come in when they're bowing to the West Saxon kings or to the kings of the English. Um, so they're written about kings and they seem to be legitimising very often kings through the history that they tell. They're legitimising them as kings of a Christian people um, they're legitimising them as military rulers, as successful military rulers. I do think that changes a bit over time, and I think the 11th and 12th century chronicles start to look a bit different, and also they do get a bit more critical um, than the early ones are. So it's not, um, would it be fair to say it's not that useful as a work of social history then? For social historians, does it, it doesn't offer, offer too much to them? Not much, no. Not much, just the odd little reference here and there. Um, a, a movement at the end of Ethelred's reign, just after Ethelred's reign, by someone who's called the Churl's King. But it doesn't tell anything else about it. You know, just leaves us to imagine. Sure. Um, and we talked a bit earlier about uh, the role of women in the Chronicles um, and how they might have been responsible for actually writing, composing some of them. But... We don't see them very often as uh, as characters in the, in the chronicles, as you said earlier. We have Athelflaed, um, but they they don't feature very often. No, they don't. Um, as you just said, Athelflaed she features um, she features as the daughter of King Alfred and a ruler of Mercia, um, and actually she features doing what we might call very masculine things. She's presented as a military leader, a successful military leader, um, who wins with the help of God. Um, and I think she's being presented in a chronicle which is being written in Mercia, which is being written almost to shape her as the legitimate successor of her father. And, of course, one of the ways it does this is by just adding her story onto his. Um, just as her brother Edward, a chronicle is being produced close to him, adding his story onto his father's. Apart from that, um, as I say, we get a few references in the mid-10th century and seem to be linked up very much with the interests of an Archbishop of York. They feature a bit more in some of the mid-11th century chronicles, um, which do become much more explicit about the struggle for the throne after the death of King Canute. And then we do start to hear about the women who are involved, um, because this is exactly, of course, the kind of politics that brings women in. Um, family politics, struggles within the royal family, struggles between sons um, and between rival claimants. And so we do hear a bit more about them there. And a huge entry, one of the longest entries on a person in any of these chronicles, is on a woman. It's on Margaret of Scotland. And it's added almost certainly quite late in Chronicle D, just after the Norman Conquest. And the reason I think she's there and why she is made such great play with is because she is one of the few surviving descendants of the line of King Alfred after 1066. 
So if you like, it's another indication that she's there because of the dynasty. You know, she, she's there. The dynasty has brought a woman in. Usually, these dynastic chronicles won't be interested so much in women because they'll be interested in pushing um, or in talking about particular kings. But here, um, she's the representative of the dynasty. She gets the big write-up. So you've talked a bit earlier about how um, authors, uh, some p- people who are writing the, uh, the the chronicles, they seem to go back in time a bit every now and again. So um, how far do we see uh, the, the authors or the makers of the chronicles shaping, reshaping, um, perhaps even rewriting history um, uh, after the fact? Obviously, it's after the fact. That's history. <laughs> Quite often. Um, I mean, again, you have to look very carefully to see this because they look very mechanical. You know, they they just look as if... Here's someone sitting down with perhaps, a, as I'm sitting here in my, my study, set of books, set of sources, brings them all together, spatchcocks them together, makes a chronicle. No agendas, you know, no shaping or anything. This isn't, on the whole, the way I think that we should see them. There's selection and choice going on all the time, and this is shaping particular stories. Take something like that lost northern recension. Um, It's a chronicle made for the Archbishops of York. Its makers take Alfred's chronicle. They take Bede's ecclesiastical history. They've got some lists of Northumbrian kings and perhaps bishops. They've got a set of Latin annals from the north, the York annals. Is this just a mechanical bringing together? Well, to some extent, but as soon as you start looking at it, you'll see it's not that simple. They're pulling material together from different chapters in Bede. They're editing the York Annals, and what comes out of it is a new chronicle. Um, It still has Alfred's chronicle. It's making the case for the legitimacy of rule by these southern kings, but it's also pulling Northumbrian history into the story. So you could say it's helping to make the case that southern kings should rule in Northumbria because it's pulling the, the Northumbrian kingdom into the story that Alfred had told and it now has lots more about archbishops of York in fact in some ways they're starting to appear as the the heroes or joint heroes of the story and the overall driver you could say here is the new position of a southern appointed archbishop of York Um, second half of the 10th century the southern kings start to appoint archbishops of York they're not appointed within the north anymore they're the king's man in the north And here is a chronicle, as it were, that speaks to their new position um, and maybe to the needs of their new position. Maybe makes them also feel good about it. I mean, I could give you lots of examples of that, but it depends really how much time we've got. (laughs) I think we'll we'll have to skip on, but um, but no, it's very interesting to to think about the uh, uh, the sort of the local agendas that might be uh, might be appearing. So I'm wondering now. You mentioned uh, Knut earlier. Um, I did a podcast about Knut. I'm never sure if I'm pronouncing the name right or not, but anyway, I'm going to go with Knut. Um, So. uh, what happens to the chronicle when the Anglo-Saxon, the Wessex line that that uh, is you know follows Alfred, is ejected and replaced by these Danish rulers, Canute and his sons, in the uh, in the early eleventh century? These chronicles pretty much dry up in the reign of Canute. Um, there are a few annals at the beginning. They're essentially ending the story of Ethelred the Unready, which gets a big write-up. Um, in several of these chronicles. Very unflattering write-up, I have to say. Um, But after that, there's virtually nothing 
for the rest of Canute's reign through to 1035. He's followed, as you probably know, by two sons, um, Harold Harefoot and Harthur Canute. They are chronicled um, in two or three chronicles, but it's retrospective. And it looks as if the story of their reigns is written up once the chroniclers know that Edward the Confessor, lineal descendant of Alfred, exiled um, during the reign of Canute. He comes back in 1041-42, and that seems to spark two or three chronicles to start again. Um, and they then write about Harold Harefoot and Harthur Canute, but it's retrospective. You know, It's to explain how we got here to 1041-42. So essentially, after the Danish conquest, it's drying up. Um, and I think it's very interesting that it's re the return of the old dynasty that seems to spark them into life again. Um, though I would stress that there are gaps before Canute as well. I mean, King Athelstan at the beginning of the, the 10th century, 924, 939, hardly any writing during his, his reign, um, hardly anything about him in these chronicles. So it's not just the Danish kings, but I think it is significant um, that it dries up then. Like, is it possible that we might have lost those bits, the, those those elements, or I think it's very unlikely. I mean, this is a this is a huge problem, you know, and it's one that keeps me awake at night sometimes. <laughs> what what might we have lost? I've written a book. Um, I've tried to identify the the lost chronicles, but were there more? The the thing that makes me think the gaps are real is because at the beginning of the 12th century, we have a group of Latin chroniclers um, like William of Malmesbury, uh, the chronicle that we know of as John of Worcester, um, Henry of Huntingdon. And these people are trying to write about the pre-1066 past and they gathered chronicles together. It's obvious that they use these chronicles and they don't seem to have one that covers the reign of Canute in, in detail. So I, I think it's a, it's a real gap. I don't think it's just that just loss, <laughs> but as I say, it does keep me awake at night sometimes. Okay, um, uh, I, I guess that's a, a good thing, a good thing as any to keep you awake. Um, so, uh, so it kind of there's a sense maybe that they it gets the reign of Edward the Confessor and people think, well, we better we better sort of explain what's gone on here. Um, does the same thing happen after 1066 when again the uh, the old Wessex line is uh, is extinguished? It's a very interesting comparison, actually, and it really warns you to be very, very careful about generalising about these, these chronicles um, because the contrast with what happens after the Danish conquest is striking. After 1066, all sorts of things happen in these different chronicles. You get the writing of annals, the writing of contemporary history. At least one chronicle is still writing annals right through into the early 12th century. You get additions made to older chronicles. Um, they go back to Chronicle A and they add stuff in about St Dunstan, for instance, a 10th century Archbishop of Canterbury. That's added in after 1066. But there's new chronicles made, the bilingual F around about 1100, um, the Peterborough Chronicle, Chronicle E. There's lots of activity going on at Canterbury, new chronicle being made there, additions to A and to other chronicles. There's annual writing somewhere in the north. And we get some very different takes on the new situation in these chronicles. You've got Chronicle F producing a Latin translation for a new Norman audience and also writing the Normans into the story. So 
that author adds some Latin annals giving a brief account of Norman history into the pre-1066 chronicles. It's almost as if they're incorporating the Normans into the story. And then in the north, you've got Chronicle D calling William of Normandy a bastard. Um, and technically, of course, that more or less true because there are questions about the, the marriage between his father and mother, but I don't think Dee's making a legal point there. <laughs> um, and it accuses him of breaking all the coronation promises he made. So you've got one chronicle absorbing the Normans, speaking to a Norman audience, another one which seems really quite critical um, in many ways. You've got the addition at Canterbury of stuff about early Kentish history, about popes and archbishops. You've got annals following some of the survivors of the pre-1066 dynasty. Um, you've got an increasingly critical tone in at least one chronicle. Why the difference with Canute? Well, I think you're into the whole big question of the impact of the Norman conquest um, here. Almost all the pre-1066 bishops and archbishops are replaced. I mean, maybe it's partly the shock of that. In the long term, I think that will help end these chronicles because these are patrons, of course. You've got the shock of the dispossession of English landholders. Um, neither of those things happened in a big way after Canute's takeover in 1016. You've got perhaps also a realisation that this was the conquest that was here to stay. You've got to look very hard at the precise dates of these chronicling activities after uh, 1066. Some of them are 40, 50 years um, after the conquest. It's as if, you know, well, we know the Normans are here and now we will adjust that pre-1066 history or rewrite it in response to that. I think what it tells me is, first of all, that anybody who's looking at the impact of 1066 has got to look at these chronicles and they've not just got to look at them for the story, they've got to look at them as part of the story. They, What's happening to them is part of the story of what happened after 1066. It's not just the simple factual account of it. You're also got to get the message, don't generalise them, because there's different things happening in all of them. It's as if they're all reacting to what they increasingly see as a major event. But in the end, of course, the impact of the Norman Conquest is the same as Canute's. They peter out. Um, the last annals are added to the last known vernacular chronicle in the middle of the 12th century. Audience, patrons, writers, they've all changed by then. And all those circumstances, you know, the court, um, great patrons around the court, people who were signed up, as it were, to the, the West Saxon project, they've all gone. And the chronicles that were produced in that context, in the end, they die. So the, the chronicle, um, yeah, as you said, it uh, it peters out um, at that period. But you've talked about this um, a bit in the course of this interview. Um, how far would you say is the is the chronicle, the chronicles, um, justifying or advancing the cause of the idea of of Englishness and English state, principally one born out of uh, out of Wessex and, and that southern English kingdom? Well, I think you've got to remember when they're being written and where they're being written. They're written in the 10th, 11th, early 12th century. The 10th century especially is a period when, as you say, West Saxon kings are extending their power north. They're extending it into Mercia. They're extending their rule over Northumbria. The chronicles that are being written then 
are, as far as I can see, almost all of them somehow connected to the courts of these kings or to people who are part of the project um, for a southern elite, if you like. They reflect it, certainly. And I think that they are telling a story which could be read and almost certainly was read as legitimising those kings as rulers and also arguably legitimising rule over a wider England. So in that sense, yes, they are connected. They're connected. They're especially pushing the dynasty, I think. They're especially connected to the dynasty. Um, I really wouldn't see them as being attempts to form the English, as it were. As a byproduct of all of that's, that's going on at this time, I think England is emerging, England is being made. Um, and the Chronicles are part of it, but I don't think we should think of them as a kind of propaganda um, which is being produced to achieve that. I think it's much better to think of them as very much attached to these kings, at least the 10th century ones especially. Um, and because they're made for an audience and read by an audience um, and patronised by people who are signed up to this wider project, they are part of the story in the 10th century especially. But really, it's about the king. So it's promoting the kings and, and their family and their... Okay, okay. Um, all right, last last question then. Um, uh, as you said, these the sources have survived. We don't know what's missing, but they've you know they've survived in, uh, in enough number for us to have these chronicle, chronicle sources. How much poorer would our understanding of this period be if they hadn't survived? Would we, would we um, be completely lacking in information about a lot of these kings? Well, if they hadn't survived into the early 12th century, we would know virtually nothing of the, of the period after Bede, the, the general um, narrative. And we know precious little anyway from them for long periods because there, there are gaps in them. Um, the, as I said before, at the beginning of the 12th century, people like William of Malmesbury, Henry of Huntingdon, the Chronicle of John of Worcester, they use them. So a lot of the facts that we get from them are in those chronicles too. But they're in those chronicles because they used them, because they use these vernacular chronicles. So you could say, if you wanted, well, we'd have many of the facts, most of the facts. But the facts are only half the story. Um Without them, we wouldn't know what history some people were writing in the late 9th, 10th and 11th and early 12th centuries, what history they were telling. We wouldn't be able to ask the kind of questions, you know, when did they tell it? Why were they telling it in these ways then? Where the, and for whom were they telling it? And I, I'm inspired to write this book in the first place because I wanted to sort those kinds of questions out. I wanted to try to establish where each of them belonged and its context so that I could ask questions or other people could ask questions about the interests and the arguments, um, the minds of the authors and patrons that they might give us some sort of insight into. Without them, for instance, I think we'd know a lot less about the struggle for the succession to Alfred's kingdom in the early 10th century. That sparks two or three chronicles, which are almost arguing in dialogue with each other. We wouldn't know that um, without them. Um, we wouldn't know that the history was reshaped for an Archbishop of York, you know, who's sent from the south um, and who's acting as a, a, a southern agent almost in the north. 
we'd know, as I've just said, a lot less about English responses to 1066. So I think even if we had the 12th century chroniclers and said, okay, we've got those facts, we'd still be an awful lot poorer if we didn't have these Anglo-Saxon chronicles. Because history writing is not just about establishing a list of facts, is it? I mean, they're important. I'd be the last person to say that facts were not important. But it's about asking questions about the past. Um, and it's about entering into a kind of conversation with our sources um, about those questions. And if we lost these chronicles, we'd lose a lot of potential voices. And what I hope my book does is to identify many of them, because this then allows us to bring them into the historical conversation, as it were, to hear their voices. Um, and I think that gives us a much richer view of the centuries that they cover. That was Professor Pauline Stafford. Her book, After Alfred, Anglo-Saxon Chronicles and Chroniclers, is out now from Oxford University Press. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. We'll be back tomorrow with an episode on everything you wanted to know about the Cuban Missile Crisis. Thank